This is episode 257 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Retinal Regeneration, with Drs. Hui Gunte and Bo Fenner. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Dalon James alongside Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, please rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Hui Gunte from the National University of Singapore and Dr. Bo Fenner from the Singapore National Eye Institute. They're on the podcast to talk about their research on stem cell therapies for retinal diseases. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about Cell Therapy News, a free weekly newsletter brought to you by Stem Cell Science News, summarizing the latest research, news, jobs, and events in cell therapy research. Use Cell Therapy News to stay current with the latest cell therapy, gene therapy, and regenerative medicine research. Subscribe at www.celltherapynews.com. All right, Arun, I'm kicking off the roundup on this episode with, you know, I'd say I'm fatiguing with these embryo model stories, but they're just, each one of them uh, gives a, a new insight um, and has a little, you know, gem or multiple gems in it. So I, I can't say that I'm actually fatigued, but yeah, here we are with another. And I think you're going to be following up with yet another uh, from June Wula. But here I have one from Tokyo, Kyoto University, um, which is a pretty amazing story where I think, you know, we were talking before the show with these embryo models. I think we're, uh, I don't know about maturing because this has all happened in the last, you know, months to a year. But uh, I guess we're progressing uh, uh, into applying these models toward mechanistic insight um, and other applications. And I think this is a, an important story along those lines. And, you know, it starts with these fundamental cell types that are present in this early pre-implantation embryo. Um, in this case, we're talking about the epiblast and the trophectoderm, of course, but also the hypoblast, okay? So the epiblast and the hypoblast are the direct derivatives of the inner cell mass that ultimately become the, the whole embryo. But uh, during implantation, and that's what we're talking about with these embryo models that's so amazing is that we're able to, these groups are able to recapitulate these gastrolytype uh, stages. And, and during implantation, during gastrulation, uh, the epiblast and the hypoblast form this bilaminar disc that serves as a template, uh, you know, a, a, a template for the patterning of the embryo and also the progressive differentiation of the specialized cell types. Um, and so, you know, that's a, an important facet of, of these embryo models is trying to understand the interplay of those two cells and how they set up uh, these cell types and this access. And, and this story uh, from many big hitters, uh, most of them from Kyoto University. This is work led by Takuya Yamamoto and Yasuhiro Takashima. But also on this paper from Kyoto, we have Hiro Nakeuchi, uh, also at Stanford, but also Mitinori Saitu. And I think that gives you a glimpse of, you know, the breadth of this story and all the different questions they're trying to address and all the, you know, uh, interested parties and stakeholders. Also, Nicolas Rivron, 
right? Uh, so taking it back to the early days of blastoids, um, he, he dipped into this a little bit. Um, and this is a story, again, about uh, the hypoblasts mainly. Um, in, in this uh, work, they were able to introduce uh, human uh, naive, uh, importantly, naive pluripotent stem cells into this pre-implantation hypoblast. And this is the key. They did it either using this uh, genetic uh, enforced expression or uh, by chemical induction. The enforced expression was using GATA factors, GATA4, 6, and SOX17. Ultimately, they boiled it down to just GATA6. They were able um, to get uh, induction of this hypoblast lineage and also using these uh, chemically defined cocktail seven factors, which was not as efficient, but as the enforced GATA6 expression, but also worked. Um, and of course, all this is uh, being refined and optimized. And, and that was a piece of this story too. They showed that these hypoblast cells that they could differentiate, a lot of the paper was just showing that they could make them and, and you know, uh, validating them. Um, and then they showed they could assemble with naive uh, pluripotent stem cells into this bilaminar structure, which they called a bilaminoid, um, that had a, a proamniotic cavity. Um, and here is another key. And as I was saying earlier, I think these stories are progressing to now where you got to kind of test different conditions and optimize and refine. Uh, and in this case, they showed uh, that when they uh, uh, combine that bilaminoid with trophectoderm, they get uh, increasing uh, efficiency or when they combine the, the hypoblast and the naive cells with additional cell layer of tro trophectoderm, they increase the efficiency of the bilaminoid formation from 20% to 40%. So again, this idea of like, how can we get closer uh, to the bona fide? Um, and uh, then mechanistically, they drill down, show that it's uh, IL-6 coming from the trophectoderm that's driving this improved efficiency. Uh, they show, and this is key, the, the patterning here. And I think this is where we're getting to. It's not just a ball of cells, but we're actually getting the axis here. They get the AP axis formed um, that is reflective of this pre-gastrula stage according, I mean, in addition to a lot of the cell types that you might expect or want to see there, including PGCs. They uh, showed that Cerberus, they had this, they just threw this in, which was pretty amazing, this uh, Cerberus reporter showing that there was a Cerberus a popu positive population there in, in the bilaminoid, suggesting that there was like an organizer. They show they can get these hematoendothelial precursors, uh, primordial germ cells, et cetera. And then finally, um, suggest this other mechanistic uh, overlay of uh, DKK1 signaling OTX2 um, that's driving all this pattern formation and cell lineage specification. So uh, as I said early, I mean, it's like getting the embryo model, it was half the battle. And then they drill deep down into defining what this true hope hypoblast cell type is. Um, and then showing that the tweaking the combination of this and other cells uh, that you can, you can get closer uh, to a bona fide embryo model here, in this case uh, of human cell type. So as I said, you might get fatigued with just the, hey, we made an embryo model, but I think the the real juicy details there are what make these, these papers continue rise to the top. In this case, uh, a nature accelerated article preview. Yeah, this is a, another um, early embryo model in the slew of early embryo model studies that are coming out this year. Um, it is a mechanistic, heavy, heavy lift. And you can see that in the characterization that they're doing for these bilaminoids. I mean, they have 
all sorts of transcriptional and not really functional, but uh, other assays to validate the the real identity of these things. And you know, the question comes up: uh, what's left? This, if you think of this as a the early embryo models of the tree, pretty much all the the low hanging fruit has been plucked from that tree, at least from when it comes to the early embryo side of things and we were talking about this before the show now you got to reach for those higher up fruits which is the the later stages of organogenesis of course much more fraught ethically you know ethical considerations to uh, to take into account but that's what's coming up next and i i envision it i mean we talked about it before the show this is going to be happening within the next two to three years where you're going to have much more advanced version of these models uh where you're starting to look at organogenesis the, the the first heartbeats and all that kind of stuff and certainly of course we're all saying it has to be done appropriately when it comes to the ethical side of things but inevitably inevitably that's the next step for these models yeah that's for sure i mean i, I don't know about the next step i think that that's in the future and for sure, uh, you know, a couple of years down the line, we're going to be talking about a series of these more advanced organoids and organogenesis type models. Um, but what I love about this show, about this field, about science in general, is that, you know, you may think you've plucked all those low hang fruit and and we have the low hang one, I, I think, as you allude to the ones that are obvious. To, to me, at least, with my limited imagination. But I think that's the key, is that there's going to be all these other studies in the interim that are that transcend the kind of, I don't want to call it the shock value, but that, you know, the novelty, I think, you know, editorial headline-grabbing uh, science that, that I think editors love because it sells a lot of journals, draws a lot of attention, and the embryo model is fraught and polarizing and a firebrand, you know, it's a lot of things, but I'm looking forward to the kind of in-between time when it's not such a big story that they made the embryo model at all, and it's more about how it's applied. And I think that's what's going to be great, is that there's going to be a lot of intermediate steps where these models are applied toward really interesting questions that I can't even, you know, conceive of right now because I'm just not that creative, Arun. I don't know about you, but I, I can't wait to see all those stories as they come out. Absolutely. It's fun just being a bystander here and just watching as these things go by. Uh, but you're totally right. I, I think perhaps there's, a, you know, it's like the calm before the storm, before the next huge wave of papers in this field is going to come out. But that that calm is going to contain so many important mechanistic studies about how to slowly push these things to the next level, incorporating other cell types, thinking about different culture conditions to make these, um, you know, these these models better and survive longer. And uh, it's going to take a, a real team effort. And, and like you said, there were some really big names on that particular paper, Mitsunari Saito and Nicola Rebron, who's of course been on the show, but also in the acknowledgements, and since this is a key you know, study from Kyoto, uh, Shinya Yamanaka, the man himself, he says, you know, thank you, Dr. Yamanaka, for the consultation on this particular study, and inevitably he had some really great insights to provide. Um, one other side note, you know, and this is something I've reflected on in the past, the one of the major transcription factors that was being used for the overexpression approach here in, in that particular paper was GATA6. And GATA6 is one of my favorite transcription factors, not necessarily for its role in very early embryo development, but also just because it's such a powerful transcription factor for the organogenesis side of things. We talked about organogenesis and how that's going to be a, a future next step for these models. 
GABA6 is one of the master regulators of both the pancreas and the heart. So it just tells you how critically powerful these early transcription factors are, the GATA family, for example, in regulating these different aspects of early development. So pretty cool to see. And I alluded to the importance of culture conditions in helping take some of these embryo models to the next step and helping them survive long term. And so the next paper I'm actually going to talk about is, again, uh, another early embryo modeling study, but this is more in the realm of getting those right culture conditions to make these things survive uh, for long term and across different species, also importantly. So this is a paper in Cell coming from a friend of the show, Jun Wu, uh, over there at UT Southwestern, who's, of course, well known for his work on chimeras and also early blastocyst models as well. And here, the first author being Yu Li Wei. Um, is a cell paper called Dissecting Embryonic and Extraembryonic Lineage Crosstalk with Stem Cell Co-Culture. So uh, they pretty much, you know, in a nutshell, they create this unified culture condition for um, multiple tissue types of mouse and synomologous monkey blastocyst, uh, which facilitates uh, stem cell co-culture experiments and, you know, figuring out the interactions between the embryonic and extraembryonic extra uh, lineages. So, you know, we talked all about embryogenesis so far. We talked about it all the time here on the show. And, you know, I think they summarized it pretty well. It needs a harmonious coordination between the embryonic and extraembryonic tissues, which ultimately gives rise to the embryo proper, right? And even though you need stem cells from both the embryonic and extraembryonic origins, and even though a number of these model systems have been generated, they're often grown in different culture conditions. So in this particular study, again, a cell paper, uh, they used a, a unified culture condition that activates some pretty critical signaling pathways just across the board, but also specifically in early embryos. Uh, FGF signaling, TGF beta signaling, and the Wnt signaling pathways, um, they activated these pathways to successfully derive embryonic stem cells, uh, extraembryonic uh, endoderm stem cells, and trophoblast stem cells from the three foundational tissues of mouse and synomologous monkey blastocysts. Okay, so this is a, a neat approach using this custom media, this custom culture condition that can facilitate the co-culture of these embryonic and extraembryonic stem cells. Um, actually showing that there's a growth inhibition effect that's exerted by the extraembryonic endoderm cells on the pluripotent cells, uh, in particular through extracellular matrix signaling. So that's pretty cool to see. Um, the other part of this is a it's an evolutionary story, right? So this is a, a cross-species analysis that they actually conducted um, to identify that there are some shared and also some unique transcription factors and pathways that are regulating the the formation and the culture of these custom cell types. So, um, and that actually at the very tail end of the story, they dove into the human side of things a little bit. So that was kind of cool to see as well. But ultimately, I think this is a a nice tool, a nice culture media for the, the field as a, as a general, a field as a whole, to maybe offer some new avenues for developing more faithful embryo models, right? That's what we're all talking about here on the show. And maybe even improving the differentiation protocols needed to make the embryo models as well. So another great recipe, another great resource from the Junwu lab, of course, like I said, they're so critically important in the in the development of these early blastoid models, um, as well as these chimera studies. So they're really pushing forward this field as a whole. And I think more broadly speaking, I think they're doing just a general service to the stem cell community in their lab by developing some of these really useful methodologies that hopefully all of us can use. Yeah, June just keeps grinding. 
And I mean, his productivity is amazing. We've got to have him back on the show before he publishes another seven or eight stories we get behind. The um the thing with me about this, it was like a bit of a mind ass just because conceptually, not in like a black mirror type way, but it was just, I couldn't reconcile. I can, but it's just hard, I think, to reconcile this with the physiology. You know, ES cells, pluripotent cells that are a hack to begin with, right? They don't really exist physiologically or at least are transient. Um, but at least I can understand the idea of overriding the the biology, the physiology with like culture conditions. You have culture conditions. And so you can isolate a single cell type and keep it going in perpetuity, right? And you can do that with the trophoblast stem cell lineage, you can do that with these end cells. The idea that you can combine them all and have a common medium that sustains them, it, it's kind of like, for me, it's like, how? Uh, the whole idea of an embryo pre-implantation stage is this microenvironment, right? The 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 signals are so local uh, that they serve as a nidus of this whole embryonic, you know, growth, etc. Hundreds of cell lineages, but the idea that they cannot coexist, I think, is really something that I wouldn't have predicted was possible. So it's another uh, example of Dr. Wu here. Uh, overriding the dogma and and exceeding my expectations. I will note, though, that uh, it wasn't easy. And I think it, it's noted in the limitations that these these cell types can't coexist for long. You know, after a few passages, one of them will race out and take over the culture. Uh, that's not unexpected. It's amazing that they can coexist even for a couple passages. And also, as you alluded to, the limitations with the human, they weren't able to get the human trophoblast lineage going uh, they weren't able to get the human zen directly from blastocyst so i think that's just a matter of optimizing but it's an important note i think that it's kind of maybe a species specific recipe you're gonna have to find a common denominator so to speak that is unique for every every species that you try to apply it to at least that would be my my projection my prediction yeah you know you talked about common culture media this is something that i have an interest in as well like for example you know the work that we do in my lab we grow stem cell derived cardiomyocytes endothelial cells fibroblasts and you know to make the cells they all require their own specialized media but what if you can grow them all together in an all-encompassing media and make them survive long term it's about tailoring the media to uh, the appropriate cell types, making sure the right growth factors and all that are in that common media. So this is what what they're showing here in the Wu Lab papers. It's not easy, but at the same time, if you think about it, you know what is the most common common media uh, in nature? Like we all have that in our bloodstream, blood, right? Blood is a common media, and it's been around for millions of years of evolution, and blood is able to grow multiple cell types simultaneously in in our body and other bodies of all sorts of animals so it's also just a it makes me think about blood and just how cool blood is to be able to grow all these different cell types harmoniously right it's it's beautiful to see i mean beautiful but i'm getting a little bit of a creepy picture in my imagination here arun of you just like culturing your cells in blood you know the big <laughs> maniacal smile on your face i don't, I don't want to elaborate too much on that in my mind but um i'm with you it's like a, it's an idea uh that i think is right there in nature and i think june was going after it trying to find that common denominator for all the the stem cell lineages 
uh, of the pre-implantation embryo. And, you know, I wouldn't bet against him. Uh, another person I wouldn't bet against is Jurgen Noblik. I mean, he just keeps pumping them out, rivaling Jun Wu and his productivity. Uh, but the best thing about his group and the work they do is that there's always an acronym at the end of the day. And you get a beautiful term for a method or some cell type, and this is no different. Uh, a methods paper also, I mean, he's, he's, he's pioneering, I think, a platform here that is going to be heavily cited and amazingly useful to a lot of groups. Um, and it's about a subject that we've been really uh, talking about lately, really focused on with our recent discussion with Blue Rock uh, about their pivotal Parkinson's disease trial. Uh, this is along the same lines, all right? Parkinson's disease, just quickly by review, there's only about a half a million of these dopaminergic neurons in the brain. Um, and the dopaminergic signaling has, it does a lot of things, right? We talk about it a lot in terms of Parkinson's disease, but it's neuromodulatory across a, a lot of different um, cell types and behaviors, controls motivation, reinforcement, motor control, voluntary movement. There's the Parkinson's, also arousal and reward, right? Um, dopamine. We all know about dopamine. That's what the TikTok is hacking in our children. God damn them. Um, but you know, it's also a major facet of disease, not just degenerative disease, but also addiction. So the dopaminergic neurons, they project anteriorly into the striatum, and that's the nigrostriatal pathway, but they also project into the cortex, and that's the mesocorticolimbic pathway. And it's an important distinction because that uh, nigrostriatal pathway is the one we talk about a lot, the degeneration of which results in Parkinson's disease. Um, and that's the key here in, in terms of the rationale. Some of the, the aspects of Parkinson's disease can't be modeled in an animal, right? Because they don't develop Parkinson's in a natural way. They can only have it be um, simulated with these lesions that are not physiological and don't, uh, don't recapitulate that degenerative uh, paradigm. So we don't really understand either how that uh, system develops normally or how the, the genetic uh, presumed, we don't really understand as far as I know, the genetic roots of Parkinson's and also the environmental factors, which we know exist, you know, Muhammad Ali, but uh, we don't really understand um, how those environmental insults can alter development, uh, lead to this uh, neur neuron degeneration, dopaminergic neuron degeneration. But there's also um, the corticolimbic uh, pathway, right? And and quickly, I should say, you know, not just understanding and modeling the disease, but also we talked in, in when we were talking to um, Vivian Tabar and Stefan uh, Irian there about the the models that they they use and how they're they're constantly tweaking and improving that. And but you know, they can only do it in real life. They had to develop all these methods in a human patient, you know, kind of on the fly. Although they were clearly optimized beforehand. But having a system where you could actually look at the biology and, and test uh, new methods of that innervation or understanding the dynamics and the timing, et cetera, that would be key, right? So there's a lot of reasons that you want to model uh, uh, Parkinson's disease in the cell-based model in vitro. Um, but also, as I, I start to say, the mesocorticolimbic uh, facet of dopaminergic neurons is also really key, right? Because as I alluded to, it's, uh, it runs... Uh, governs uh, reward and addiction um, and, you know, is the target of cocaine as an example of a highly addictive drug 
that is the scourge of our uh you know the our first world existence not the but a scourge of the first world existence um and we don't really have great models we got a lot of rats that are going crazy with the cocaine hitting the tabs till they fall over but we don't have really appropriate models in the human circuit um, for understanding these dopamine related uh, addiction type diseases right so enter uh, Jurgen Noblik and his group uh, they're going after the assembloids here so Sergio Pasca's got to watch his back but I'm sure he's cheering this on um, because it, it's going to be a major assist for his uh, endeavors as well here they develop this in vitro model that it recapitulates these, this innervation of dopaminergic neurons, both into the striatum and the cortex. Uh, and they call them midbrain striatum cortical organoids. There it is, MISCOs. There's the acronym. It's a Noblick paper. You got to have one. Uh, that's a good one, I have to say. Some of his, I'm like, really? But this MISCO, I mean, the letters all line up. Um, and then it's a methods paper, right? So they're laying it out, showing you how they grow these ventral midbrain, the striatal cortical organoids, and then they fuse them in a line, uh, similar to how Dr. Pascas and others groups uh, just put them next to each other um, in these particular, in these embedding molds that they developed. And they show that there's these functional long-range dopaminergic connections to striatal and cortical tissues. And then when they inject uh, these midbrain progenitors, they mature and innervate that tissue. So this is a real complex assembloid. Um, and a great platform for anything but then of course next level because it's nature methods they take the miscos to the disco and treat them with chronic cocaine and show that there's a lot of changes that happen and persist even when they withdraw the drug which is what you'd expect when you look at these rats you know hitting the tab the, the coke goes away but they're still they're still after it <laughs> um, so this is a, a really, there's a lot here. I love this story just because anytime there's cocaine in the abstract, I'm reading it. And all jokes aside, like I have a researcher that I know who's really invested at UPenn in addiction research. And like she might have to get into assembloids now just because this is some next level platform uh, that, as I said, is going to be heavily referenced uh, the world over moving forward. Very exciting stuff for her. Taking the misco to the disco and hit him with some cocaine. That's a that's a new one here on the show. Um, you never know what we're going to talk about here. But yeah, I think it's a great model system, not only for looking at addiction and that sort of area of study, but just, you know, understanding the mechanisms of Parkinson's. And one other thing that I, you know, and this is going to be relevant for the next paper that I talk about, which is also an assembly paper. One other thing that I think um, is perhaps undervalued for the utility of these uh, assembloids is uh, how, how they can serve as avatars for cell therapy, right? So in this situation, you can introduce dopaminergic progenitors or whatever into this model system and see how it's able to appropriately integrate into this model. In a, and this is, this is an, an avatar that could be really useful in a situation where you don't have a great human uh, model systems or human cells to study these disease mechanisms. Like, you know, obviously you can't get a lot of human tissue for studying uh, Parkinson's disease ex vivo. You're reliant on those clinical samples. Um, but similarly for cardiac tissue, right? It's really hard to grow cardiac tissue ex vivo um, and using some of these stem cell models as avatars for say cardiac cell therapy could be, could be pretty useful. And in fact, 
that's uh, what I'm going to talk about next. I'm not going to jump into that quite yet, but just wanted to focus on this particular paper. Again, a methods paper, like we talked about in the previous uh, paper from Jun Wu's group. Uh, perhaps a very useful technology for the greater field, for the Parkinson's field and other folks who are hoping to study addiction. Yeah, I that jumped out. Of, I mean, as I joked and actually genuinely am interested in addiction research, and I thought this brought a, a, a really exceptional new tool to the to the fore there. But yeah, like you, what jumped out to me is the taking the assembloid and then injecting cells into it. You know, using it as a substrate um, and an avatar, as you you said very well. Um, and just thinking of that Blue Rock thing about how nowadays there's another the 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 new is that we can have a, a substrate that we can we can test uh, cell therapies on in order not just to see if they'll functional. You know, everyone talking about functional integration. But just like what the the timing is, what the dosing is, you know, all the things that maybe would be left for phase one, I think that here we have a system where we can unpack a lot of that stuff in advance. And, you know, ultimately, it's going to be to the benefit of those early stage recipients of these, um, you know, experimental trials. So, yeah, I agree with you, Aruna. I love the idea of as these assemblies get more complex. We're creating these biological substrates and avatars for for testing that are going to change the way we apply cell therapies in turn. Yeah, strengthening the the preclinical data set that's needed for studies like the Blue, the Blue Rock studies, uh, for example. Um, I mean, the other advantage of these systems uh, is that they're scalable, um, unlike in vivo models, for example. I mean, you can mass produce these assembloids to some extent. I mean... They're not as scalable as the, the traditional organoids because just by nature of having to put these guys together, they are much more complex and uh, perhaps their scalability is somewhat limited in that in their regard. But yeah, that concept of serving as an avatar for cell therapy is uh, not just limited to the, the neural side of things, but also potentially the cardiac side of things. So that's the final paper for the roundup uh, for this week, which is another cell paper titled Multi-Chambered Cardioids reveal human heart development and cardiac defects. This is coming from, in my mind, perhaps the the world leader in cardiac organoids, uh, developmental cardiac organoids, and that's Sasha Menjin. And first author here is Clara Schmidt. Um, the Menjin Lab has uh, put together a number of exceptional papers in this area. Uh, initially, just developing individual chamber-specific cardiac organoids or cardioids, as they call it. I'm not the, honestly, I'm not the biggest fan of the term cardioids, but hey, I didn't come up with it. It's their study. They can call it whatever they want, honestly. Um, but you know, they're taking their cardioids to the next level. The cardioid paper, I think, came out a couple years ago, again, in a very high-profile journal as well. And this is basically making cardiac assemblies, all right? And the heart itself is, if you think about it, it is an assemblage in, in a way. You got four chambers that all kind of smash together. Not really smash together, but four chambers, and you can perhaps approximate that in a an assemblage model, which is exactly what they did here. So diving right into it, um, yeah, and you know a little bit of context, but sort of obvious. Uh, heart development is something that's critically important. The heart is the first organ that forms in the body, but as I alluded to in the previous study human cardiac tissues are really hard to obtain 
And even if you're able to obtain it, this time I was just talking about this in my lab meeting the other day. It's so hard to keep keep these guys alive. Growing human cardiac tissue for longer than two weeks in in culture ex vivo is is basically impossible. Which is why iPSCs are so amazing. iPSC cardiomyocytes are so great because you can mass produce human cardiac cells, patient-specific human cardiac cells, really for the first time. Um, and in this situation, similarly, the human embryonic embryonic heart is uh, pretty inaccessible for obvious reasons. So if you want to study the impacts of mutations, drugs, environmental factors, all this kind of stuff on how the heart actually develops and how the different compartments of the heart are actually developed, um, you know, it's tough to do it. So you have to develop these next generation in vitro models, such as these cardioids and these cardiac assemblies, which they're they're making here. So here they made that human cardioid platform that recapitulates the development of, this is pretty impressive, all embryonic heart compartments, all major embryonic heart compartments, um, left and right ventricles, atria, outflow tract, atrioventricular canal, uh, basically by individually differentiating the separate cardioids associated with each lineage, and then smashing them together, combining them all together. And in their words, leveraging 2D and 3D differentiation, they generated these progenitor subsets with um, the distinct first anterior and posterior uh, second heart field identities, which are the different, uh, the terms associated with the, the progenitors that give rise to the different lineages of the heart arising from either the first or second heart field, okay? Um, and then, you know, like the, the previous study from the, the Noblick lab, not just making the model, but applying the model and uh, introducing different teratogens or mutations that can lead to cardiac abnormalities and early cardiac defects, uh, different drugs. They, they added those into the system as a, as a perturbation. And I think uh, to get a study like this to the level of cell, I think you have to do that sort of perturbation analysis as well. So it's a, it's a really useful system. I mean, I think it, they, they said it was scalable here, but given the complexity of this and how you have to do multiple individual differentiations in 2D and 3D and then kind of smush them all together, it may not be as scalable as they present it to be here. Um, but regardless, really cool in vitro model system to better approximate the, the early developing human heart and ultimately to help us better understand how heart development can go wrong. Yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, I was amazed. You look at five different heart-specific cell types to differentiate the complexity, the ambition of this. Um, and I, I agree with what you said at the end there in terms of the scale. The whole idea is that these organoids are scalable. But it's scalable in this case. Like, remember when Gordana made that chip that had like 20 different bodies? The chip cost like a million dollars. And so, yeah, it's like it's doable, but the question is scalable in principle, but it's going to it's going to be expensive and a lot of resources, but maybe not, you know, you got to optimize, you can get there. But the, the real thing for me here is to clarify, I think people see some people might see this. Uh, and I think the authors obviously not among them. It would be like, OK, here we're moving towards making a heart. We're getting all the different cell types in the heart. We can actually make a heart functional or not, we can make something that approximates the heart. And that I think is where I would say this, the, the heart just because of the complexity of the organ makes that such an amazing challenge that I don't think we're, we're like closer to the finish line than we're not, you know what I mean? I don't think we're halfway there. 
with this study, as amazing as it is, making the five cell types. And they note this, you know, there's a lot more to the formation of the heart, you know, the looping, you know, there's a lot of anatomical things that make up that space. And you you said it like six times in recapitulating, smushing things together is not, you know, making versus growing, you know, it's so that you can put things together or they can grow. And obviously the most elegant examples in nature are grown, not, not formed. Um, but that said, you know, it, it, I don't think that was the goal here. You know, there's all these other things that need to happen. Valve formation, septation, uh, the pacemaker establishment, trabeculation, ballooning, the vascular element uh, and circulating blood cells. I mean, a huge part of the anatomy of the heart has got to be formed by the contraction, right? It's got to be an impetus to the anatomical development there. So yeah, but I will now circle back. I don't think anybody's saying we're trying to make a heart. I think what they're going for here and what makes this so amazing is, is something, a screening uh, methodology uh, that they can use for the initial, one of the great promises of embryonic stem cells, specifically in the heart, is trying to understand the influence of environmental teratogens or other influences and what causes heart defects, the, the highest cause of uh, the, the most common congenital anomaly, right? So yes, I think that while I had a whole big song and dance, how we're not making a heart, that's not what they were trying to do here. They're trying to make a nice model that was all inclusive, but it circles back to your point about scale. Can you scale this up? And they do, they show in the study, they get a lot of micro wells and all that stuff, but can you really scale this up in a practical way to do, you know, look at 10,000, you know, these small molecule libraries? I think it's going to be tough in the current, in the current state. All depends on uh, the cash, right? You know, if, if, you associate this with, say, you know, an industry-based approach, you know, I think their resources may be much more vast. And if, say, there's a company out there that's interested in identifying, uh, you know, uh, cardiotoxicity of new compounds that are being used uh, for pregnant women or, or something like that, you know, maybe this could be a useful system for for screening those drugs that are less cardiotoxic to uh, to to the developing heart. I don't know. Uh, so maybe with enough time, with enough money, the scalability can be addressed here. But you're right. Uh, one thing that we are definitely in agreement on is we're not trying to use this as a heart that's going to be for transplantation purposes. Obviously, it's not It's not that close to a real heart, right? No one's saying we're going to put this into a person. It, it's just not feasible. You just can't do that. There's so many things missing. The maturity is completely off. There's no circulation, vasculature, all that kind of stuff, right? So uh, cool model, if nothing else. But, and perhaps this is me just being cynical, having been in the cardiac modeling field for a, a really long time. I'd like to think that the heart is probably one of the easier organs to recapitulate using bioengineering. It is, you know, as we had the discussion with Dr. Tabar at the Blue Rock event, the heart is just a pump. Okay, it is a four chambered pump. Um, there are, as of many decades ago, there have been bioengineered and engineered alternatives to the heart. Of course, people get left ventricular assist devices all the time. So if you're just trying to replace the functionality of the heart, there are ways to do that. But yeah, I mean, if you want to create a a true heart that's uh, true to its developmental processes, um, we still have a long way to go. And you alluded to the, in the limitations of the study, heart looping, all these other things are missing here. Um, but a pretty cool model system, if nothing else. For sure.
I'll, I'll take that pig heart though. I mean, you, or maybe the the little pumps, <laughs> those mechanical ones, are gotten there. But I'm ready for a pig heart if it goes sure? twenty years. I don't know. Get, uh, I'll I'll be I'll be in that line. All right, I'll take it. Um, anyway, that brings us to the end. We had a nice uh, symmetry today. A couple of embryo model stories, a couple of kind of methods, assembloid stories, all amazing work. Uh, and we're going to get to some more amazing discussion of therapies in the eye, which is also uh, one of the biggest unmet needs when embryonic stem cells were first arrived. A lot of the applications were thought to, to take flight in the eye. So that's going to be an interesting discussion. Before we get there, Quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. As research using pluripotent stem cells advances toward the clinic, there is a renewed focus on cell quality. Visit www.stemcell.com slash cell quality to explore ways to assess your human pluripotent stem cells and learn about essential quality attributes to consider for gene editing, disease modeling, and maintenance. All right, everybody. On this episode, we have a special twofer. Coming at us from Singapore, we have Dr. Hui Guntei, who is assistant professor at the Center for Vision Research at the Duke National University of Singapore Medical School. The research in the Tay Lab is in regenerative medicine for retinal diseases. One of her lab's aims is to develop stem cell-based therapy for the treatment of retinal diseases such as aged macular degeneration and aging glaucoma. We also have with us Dr. Bo Fenner, who's an ophthalmologist and consultant in the Department of Medical Retina at the Singapore National Eye Center. Dr. Fenner is actively engaged in clinical and translational research of retinal diseases. He's the principal investigator of the Southeast Asian Database for Inherited Retinal Diseases and of numerous ongoing studies relating to inherited retinal disease diagnosis and therapeutics you guys thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the stem cell podcast thank you for having us thank you very much great to be here yes it's really a pleasure having uh two guests on the show i think that's going to liven up the chat a bit but it's a bit of a new format for us in that we typically interview a single guest usually a group leader about their work uh but the field, you know, stem cells uh, writ large is in the midst of a pretty exciting transition with clinical trials really ramping up. Um, so we're delighted to have the two of you on the podcast to showcase the different facets of the basic and the clinical translational research landscape in the eye. So why don't we start with your own takes on what each of your groups is focused on and how your work can be leveraged toward therapeutic endpoints. Uh, Dr. Tay, why don't we start with you? So my lab is mainly interested in developing laminin-based cell, cell therapy for advanced stages of retinal diseases. And that includes inherited retinal diseases and age-related macular degeneration, as you just mentioned. So why, do we, why is cell-based therapy really important? Because there are different therapies uh, that are catered for different degrees of severities for, for the different retinal diseases. So on the, for the early onset of retinal diseases, like you know, if you lost the gene function, you could actually use gene therapy to, to uh, for, for therapy, you know, to actually replace the functional role of the, the gene. But as the as the disease progresses, became more severe, like 
from mid onset to the late onset where there is you know progressive irreversible loss of photoreceptor cells or other retina cells so it's more promising to actually replace this loss of cells with the appropriate you know cell types to replace those cells and replace the function of the retina function so this is what my lab is really interested in it first started as uh, you know developing cell-based therapy but right now we are really interested in going into developing gene therapy as well and 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 also you know uh think uh, and also research like you know uh, ex vivo gene edited cells which is like you know uh this is really catered tailored to each patient so um, initially, we were really into, you know, off-the-shelf agnostic cell therapy. It's like one cell therapy to, uh, to cater for many patients. So that is more like allogenic cell transplantation. But right now, I'm really going into autologous transplantation. So meaning taking the patient samples, uh, taking like, you know, the skin samples or the blood samples, you reprogram them into the induced pluripotent stem cells and you do ex vivo gene editing, which we are trying to develop and put it back to the patients. And this could actually overcome, you know, uh, the patients who have adverse effects to immunosuppression. All right, uh, Dr. Tay, you spend your days in the lab clearly and you went deep on that. We're going to expand on all that in this conversation, but... Uh... Dr. Fenner, how about you? I mean, you're you're you spend your days in the clinic. Uh, how are you leveraging your your research, clinical and basic, and other uh, towards therapeutic applications? Thanks, Dalen. So, we started some work uh, at the National Eye Center a few years ago now, uh, starting to look at what mattered for Singapore and for the region. So I, I look at patients with retinal disease and a, a portion of those patients have inherited retinal disease, which is my sort of special research interest. And it was only up until uh, quite recently that um, what happened was inherited retinal disease, which is typically considered a rare group of diseases, uh, typically in the order of less than one in a thousand uh, in the population. Um, but although they're rare, um, they tend to affect predominantly younger people um, especially people of working age. And so they have this um, sort of disproportionate impact on individuals of working age. And previously, uh, diabetic retinopathy, which is a complication of diabetes, was the leading cause of um, legal blindness amongst working age adults. But because we got really good at treating uh, diabetes and diabetic eye disease, uh, the inherited retinal disease has taken over and become the most um, prevalent cause of legal blindness amongst working age adults amongst those uh, regions or nations uh, which are sufficiently developed. And so, for example, in Australia and United Kingdom, uh, those diseases have become uh, quite important. So what we've been doing here in Singapore in the past uh, few years is trying to figure out um, which particular inherited retinal diseases are more important uh, in Singapore. And so we've been um, looking at um, the prevalence of certain subtypes of inherited retinal disease, certain uh, mutations which are very prevalent in the region, may not be prevalent in the United States, for example, but more prevalent in, in Singapore and Southeast Asia, uh, with a view to developing treatments uh, that specifically focus on those diseases. Yeah, it's certainly an area of study that's expanding in its uh, scope and scale uh, in part because of the the aging of the population that's occurring not just in southeast asia but around the world and perhaps we're all biased here but i'd like to think you know perhaps the eye is the most important of all the senses here i mean you're an opt you know an ophthalmologist we have a basic scientist here studying the eye and you know uh, i 
tend to agree. Maybe I'm biased as well. But one good thing, one thing that I think we take for granted is good eyesight, right? And you allude to it. You know, it's something where you, if you start to lose it, you really impair your quality of life for for the rest of your life. I mean, you know, I had corrected my surgery not too long ago, and just to wake up without needing to put on my glasses was life changing for me. It's not like I had any, any sort of major degenerative disease of the eye, but that was certainly something that improved my quality of life. So. Yeah, whether it's the the standard age, like farsightedness that causes us to get reading glasses, or of course, the more severe glaucoma, macular degeneration, which can lead to blindness, this is an area of exceptional interest and exceptional importance. Um, so the medical need is, you know, is obvious here, but if we look back for a second before we really take a look into the future, could you tell us what inspired you originally to actually get involved in this area, both you know as an ophthalmologist, Dr. Fenner, but also as a basic scientist hoping to study the eye and really devote this area of study to your professional career? So Dr. Fenner, if you want to go first. Well, I could give you a very glorified answer. I could give you the, the very blunt uh, truth of things, and I suppose we'll, we'll do the latter. So Ophthalmology, to be very honest, wasn't really on my radar as a medical specialty. Uh, it was something which typically in medical school, because of the way that training is organized, uh, ophthalmology is usually taught as a very brief, um, you know, one or two week, maybe three week posting to an eye hospital. And it's something which the, the medical students don't get a lot of exposure to. It's also quite different to the rest of uh, internal medicine and, and general surgery and so on, um, in the sense that it's a completely different system and completely different language way of speaking um, and it, it takes quite a few years for us to learn to practice as ophthalmologists so for me I was it was just a chance uh, event where a, a colleague of mine um, mentioned that they were really keen on eye and I didn't even know where the eye hospital was they told me to walk over there and take a look because I'd be quite amazed at what's happening over there and um, the rest was history. I, I walked into the, the eye hospital. I, I just spoke with a few of the senior ophthalmologists and they were very supportive, very encouraging. They said ophthalmology is a wonderful area to do uh, basic research in because the eye is um, this very conveniently accessible organ. Um, and then, um, you know, lo and behold, a few months later, I was um, accepted into residency and, and here I am um, as a, a practicing, practicing ophthalmologist. So it was um, quite chance. I wouldn't say that I was having this very long plan to to enter ophthalmology. Yeah, it's funny how things work out, right? Um, how about you, Dr. Tay? How did you get involved in this area? So it wasn't like, you know, right from the beginning, I was really interested in eye research, but it came from like, you know, my first term postdoc in Upstate Medical University in Syracuse. So I use zebrafish as the model system. We were really interested in, in looking into celiogenesis and cilia is like connecting cilia is also part of photoreceptors. That is where you have the connecting cilia and that's how you have the outer segments where it has the GPCR uh, where it is uh, rhodopsin is located and sends the first photon of light. So by using the zebrafish, we did not look into the eye per se at that time. So, um, but, but we were in this uh, common interest group and I was listening to the eye research group and, and we were really interested into how cilia forms and how it actually could apply in terms of, you know, understanding the, uh, the development of photoreceptors and how diseases could actually cause mutation mutations could actually lead to diseases and it would cause, you know, vision loss. So um, after after my postdoc, I decided to, to do a second term postdoc in Singapore. 
as I'm returning to Singapore and I saw um, a translational group lead by Prof. Kaltrivison, who is my mentor, and he wanted to uh, explore the yeast matrix, which is laminin, and there are at least 16 laminin isoforms in mammals. And he was looking into making a very novel recombinant laminin isoform that contains gamma-3. So I thought, like, you know, by making this recombinant laminin isoform, we, I asked the question of, we actually, uh, you know, recapitulate the retina niche to actually drive the differentiation of human pluripotent stem cells to retina cells. And at, at that time, we looked into the retina pigmented epithelial cells, which is the RPE cells. So it was pretty established by several groups already. So at that time, I was looking at the clinical trial data and, and you know, people using uh, different groups using RPE cells. And I, I was looking into it thinking that, you know, um, it might, it, it, it really reaches a milestone where it could slow down the progression of the disease. But I was thinking, you know, how could I do more in order to uh, uh, improve my research or do something more novel? So the, the next idea was uh, when I was writing my Young Investigator Research Grant, I thought maybe we should be a little bit more ambitious. We should we should explore uh, making photoreceptors instead, like develop a new protocol to make photoreceptors and and after reading a lot of visual cycle i realized that these two layers of cells are really important rpe and photoreceptors are really important in terms of uh, you know activating the visual cycle maintaining the visual cycle in order to have the vision so so i think that that made me really interested in in making therapeutics for uh, patients who have vision loss and also it hits me really hard when a uh, patient came to me to talk to me and who is happened to be one of the donor and and she she's really interested in the stem cell research that I was doing that that she you know um the husband and wife actually donated a sum of money to to my research to actually you know um help me develop the stem cell research further so she was telling me about how how it is to be um how like you know the progressive loss of vision um that she's having she she really thinks that you know she she wants to look for therapeutics to to restore vision even to restore vision you know um so so that got me really like interested in in helping somebody that i know and and i think it is also important that even though um it's not only to her diseases her, her really specific uh, you know uh, uh mutation but actually to develop a, a therapy to actually serve more patients with uh, uh, different types of gene mutations. Yeah, I mean, uh, Arun alluded to it in terms of how precious vision is, sight, um, and how it changes your experience of the world and how devastating it can be to lose that. So it, it was a, a, a major element of the great promise of embryonic stem cells from the beginning, you know, pushing 25 years since they first arrived was, you know, curing blindness, spinal cord injury, neurodegenerative diseases, coronary artery disease, and blindness. And, and in fact, the eye was a really promising target from the beginning because of the immune privilege. And for that and many other reasons, these embryonic stem cell and, and later induced pluripotent stem cell-based replacements for initially... RPE, uh, retinal pigmented epithelium, were among the first of their type of cell therapies to be trialed in humans. I mean, the first was the Geron debacle, you could say, with oligodendrocyte progenitors that kind of went nowhere. But um, soon after that, 
There were trials from Bob Lanz's group published in The Lancet um, 2013, a couple patients there, and later on looking at follow-up a year on. Um, also, Masayo Takahashi's uh, group, you know, which was a pivot or major, the, the kind of flagpole of IPS cells, although that was kind of stalled a little bit um, to be very cautious, which I think was prudent. Um, but also there's many ongoing efforts, Sally Temple, Kapil Bardi, a lot of people. I mean, I, I can't even name them all, and I don't want to place any above the rest. So my apologies to all the groups who I have an elevated here. Um, but given all that effort uh, and all those brilliant groups, you'd think that we're probably pretty close to the finish line, right? With RP patches, they've been black. Uh, you know, Blue Rock is putting out the, the evidence on neurodegenerative and Parkinson's, promising. You know, we have Vertex. There's a lot of results coming out with stem cells. You'd think we're probably close with the I two. Are we? Uh, we? Why don't you you weigh in on that? Do you think we're close? To, to therapeutics that are based on pluripotent stem cells? I think you are right in terms of the competitive landscape, right? Especially the RP cells were the first uh, cells that were being replaced uh, in, the, in the patients with loss of RP. But if you look at the patients, right, especially age-related macular degeneration, it's because there are, there are two types age-related macular degeneration, right? That's wet and that's and that's dry. So we are looking into cell replacement to both at the advanced stages. But if you are looking at wet AMD, it's actually because of the proliferation of the blood vessels. So there is an effective treatment for that, which is the NTBEGF and the Avastin and all that. So, but with, with the dry AMD, you have the Drusen deposition, you know, the lipid-rich Drusen deposition that's right beneath the RPE. So when that deposition gets accumulated, it starts to disrupt the RPE and there's secondary loss of the photoreceptors. So, so in terms of like, you know, um, the, all the researchers come together and think about, you know, you, you, you try to solve one layer of cells at a time, right? So they make RPE cells first to patch it up. But when you, when you use RPE cells, it's definitely very mature in the field. And I'm sure the clinical trial is going to be very successful and, and probably like in the long run, they would, you know, be, be commercially available because they are problems that need to be solved in terms of the cell manufacturing because of the long differentiation time and all that. So, but in terms of the regeneration itself, if you patch the RPE cells itself and you don't make photoreceptors that's right above it, so how do you actually restore vision, right? So RPE cells have shown that it could slow down the progression of the disease, but it has not significantly show that it could restore vision because that you require the photoreceptors there and it is really harder to make photoreceptors uh, than RP cells. Not that I'm, I'm saying the RP cell is really easy to make but it's really a lot more challenge, uh, more challenging to make the photoreceptor cells and that's how retinal organoids and you know uh, uh, all, the, all the research in retinal organoids all comes into play. So having said that, right, for the, uh, uh, the retinal organoid, so uh, there are pros and cons in, in using retinal organoids. So if you look into retinal organoids uh, um, research, right, they could, their differentiation, the cell differentiation is really long, sometimes more than 100 days, 200 days, depending on how mature you want the cells to be. So Masaya Takahashi's group has actually taken this to the clinical trial phase one, two A. 
right? So they make the retinal organoid and they actually uh, cut up the cap and they, they freeze it up and they also have transplanted into a few patients and have shown safety so far. So um, we are a little bit different from retinal organoid uh, research. So ours is labanin-based continuous adherent culture method. So we don't have any like, you know, we don't use any embroid bodies or retinal organoid. It's a 2D uh, cell culture system. And our strategy is not to transplant mature photoreceptors because we are using a, a single cells transplantation method. And once you trypsinize the cells from the petri dish and you are going to implant and you're going to like transplant it into the retina space, you want it to be immature enough when you freeze it up and when you inject it in, it, it, must, it must still be, have the, has the ability to actually survive, divide and mature in vivo. So that was our that, that is our strategy. So we, we have identified a time point, which is a day 32 time point, when you are able to make the cells photoreceptor, we call it photoreceptor progenitor cells that over that actually express the, the markers, which is uh rod homobox protein and the recovery. So we have 17% of that. We are still trying to optimize this protocol, but this first generation of cells containing the 17% of these cells, we are thinking about how does it work if you put it into the patients. But before we could put it in the patients, we tested it in the RD10 mice, which is a, a, a retinitis pigmentosa, uh, mimicking the retinitis pigmentosa rodent model. So in that paper, molecular therapy paper, we show that by transplanting these cells in the rodent and in the rabbit, we are able to partially restore the vision. So, so my take here is that RP is important, but photoreceptor is also important. And in the long run, I think putting these two cell layers together is the is the way to go. It's the final is the is it's the final goal that we should be able to make these cells and, and cater for patients with vision loss. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really good summary. And perhaps the broader stem cell field that's not directly involved in this area of study that we don't always think about that. We think about the RPEs and we think about all the RPE, uh, IPS derived and stem cell derived RPE therapies that are coming out there. But of course you have to integrate the photoreceptors as well to really get the, the full functional outcome for, for the eye. So that makes a lot of sense. And um, I mean, the as we're talking about here, the eye is a target for a number of these cutting edge therapeutic approaches around the world, both within the stem cell field for cell therapy, but also there's some really cool approaches happening outside the immediate cell therapy field. Um, and genome editing is one of these things, right? Genome editing has been utilized in these early stage clinical trials for various diseases of the eye. I mean, I'll just bring out one example, Editas Medicine, this biotech company in Boston, which has really pioneered some of the early CRISPR-based therapeutic approaches they have this early phase clinical trial for the treatment of blindness due to uh, LCA10 um, mutation, LCA10, which is, you know, retinal degenerative disorder. And they're using this in vivo Cas9 based approach to do it. So, you know, Dr. Fenner, what are your thoughts on this alternative non-cell therapy based approach to regenerative uh, medicine for the eye? I mean, do you think this is something that should be pursued alongside the, the stem cell based approaches? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, obviously there are many individuals very heavily invested in uh, gene-based or molecular therapeutics, which are quite complementary, I would say, to the uh, cell-based therapy. So it's it's a really important distinction to make. And the reason is because there are, if we're just looking at inherited uh, retinal degenerations, for example, you'll see that not every patient is the same. 
And so if you look at your typical um, sort of cohort of inherited retinal degeneration uh, patients, you'll see that most of them have a condition called retinitis pigmentosa or RP. And this is a, generally a progressive disease. Uh, it can affect uh, people you know, as young as five years old, for example, all the way up to late adulthood. And then you've got LCA, which you mentioned, which is a congenital uh, disease which affects infants. And so if you look at RP, that's about half of all uh, inherited retinal disease patients. And for most RP, you generally have symptom onset in um, sort of early adulthood to later adulthood. And those patients retain central vision uh, for many, many years. It's a very slowly progressive disease. And so their visual acuity is not usually affected until very, very late in the disease. And you can imagine for such a person um, doing a, a subretinal uh, transplant of cells um, would, would not be appropriate for those individuals because they may still have 2020 uh, vision. And so that is where uh, gene therapy is, is felt to be a more uh, useful approach. And the intention there is not necessarily to replace the, the cells which have already uh, died from the generation, but rather to uh, slow down the pr disease progression. And so there are, uh, there's an upcoming, uh, well, there's ongoing trial in phase three, which is to treat a fairly common type of RP, which is called X-linked um, retinitis pigmentosa. It's caused by damage to a gene called RPGR. And the intention there is to essentially slow down or even better to stop disease progression. And so that is applicable to many of these patients with, um, with uh, slowly progressive retinitis pigmentosa. And RPGR is one gene. There are many other genes. And so what's happening now is you're seeing different uh, research teams looking at different genes which cause RP, um, but the intention is to slow down or stop disease progression. What you've also got is the challenge that in the typical uh, model that we look at with uh, Luxterna, which was the, the first um, sort of FDA approved uh, gene therapy, and that is for um, LCA, secondary to uh, changes in RP65. Uh, those uh, patients are born with very poor vision. And so it's much easier to swallow to be able to go into that eye, lift up the macula and, and put your gene therapy underneath uh, the retina um, because the patient is already having profound vision loss. But if you're talking about a person that's still got 20-20 vision, you know eventually maybe 10, 15, 20 years down the road, they may lose that vision. But right now in front of you, you've got a person in 20-20 vision. And so for an, uh, an ophthalmologist, it's much less palatable to be talking to that patient about going and doing you know, fairly high-risk surgery, lifting up the retina and putting your gene therapy in when actually that patient may not lose central vision for, for another decade or two. And so that's where you know, both approaches are useful. Um, we fairly recently looked at patients here in Singapore that had um, inherited retinal disease, and we looked at which proportion of those patients um, might, might benefit uh, from cell therapy. And that really means patients whose vision, vision loss is profound enough that we would be prepared to go and do big-time retinal surgery with those patients, um, putting um, cells under the retina to try to restore vision. And because this would only be sort of safety studies, we'd really only be looking at those patients that had very profound vision loss, essentially uh, vision loss of hand motions or worse, which would mean unformed vision. They would not have peripheral vision. They wouldn't have central vision. And that proportion in inherited retinal disease is not very high. It's certainly not 50%. It's much a much smaller number. And so both approaches, the uh, gene, gene or molecular-based approaches and the cell therapy have got uh, different roles to play for, for different types of patients. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a critical 
idea to elevate is that we got so many people firing on all these different cylinders and it's going to be key to moving the needle and for each patient it's going to be a different need um and yeah i mean i guess for me as long as we've been talking about cell therapy in the eye i'm still not clear on what we stand to either preserve or restore. And and just to elaborate on that, I guess the question is, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, Kui, you started talking about how RPE is it's not enough, right? You gotta you gotta have the the components, the cellular constituents of vision that you need to put back that have been had degenerated. And Bo, you're talking about another thing, which is that there's a real question about what's appropriate for a patient, if it's about preservation or restoration. And I guess my question to put it simply, and maybe this is kind of a naive, dumb question, but I'm not an ophthalmologist or an eye researcher, so forgive me. But like, is it a, a kind of dichotomy of cells? You need cells if you want to take people, let's say, who've been blind for 10 years um, and restore vision versus people who are, you know, afflicted with a degenerative condition in order to mitigate, slow, or stop the progression of diseases? Is it that simple? And I feel like it's not that simple. Is it like gene therapy or non-cell-based approaches for preservation or mitigating loss? And you need to have cells in order to, you know, restore sight to the blind? Or am I oversimplifying there? Why don't we start uh, with you both, since you, you, you uh, segued us there with the, what's appropriate for the patient? Yeah, sure, Dalen. So I think one thing that's important to remember is you mentioned, for example, a patient that's been blind uh, for 10 years. Let, let's take a patient, for example, that has uh, labor congenital amaurosis and they've had profound vision loss from infancy. And now this person walks into your clinic, you know, 25 years later, and they say to you, um, look, have you got anything for me? And can I've heard about uh, stem cell therapy. What if you put some of these cells uh, underneath my retina? Is that going to help me? And that's, that's at the moment a little bit of an open question in ophthalmology, the reason being that that person has, has never had good vision uh, throughout their life. And so you can imagine because of uh, a problem called amblyopia, which um, in lay, lay terms might be considered as a lazy eye, but actually is closer to a lazy brain, um, that person never learned uh, neurologically to see well. And so that person has got an upper limit, uh, which dictates how well they can conceivably see. And so that that upper limit may be, you know, 2200, maybe even worse than 2200 vision. And so even if you had a very beautiful uh, stem cell therapy, if you put it under that person's retina, they may not appreciate an improvement in vision. And certainly we wouldn't expect such a person to suddenly become a 2020 vision, um, whereas it would be quite different for a person who for much of their life has enjoyed very good vision. 2020 vision for much of their life, and then it was subsequently taken away, we sort of assume that that person would still retain the capacity uh, neurologically to see 2020 if we restore the anatomy, restore the, the degenerated photoreceptors, for example. We don't know how long that would be, how many years the person can still sort of remember how to see 2020. And I think um, at the moment, we, we don't have good studies to demonstrate what that period is, but there is some... Um, period, we assume, where the patient would be amenable to re regaining vision um, after a cell transplant, for example. But um, this is something which we still need to to understand. Wait, you want to weigh in? 
Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that it's really great to work with Bo as a collaborator, especially he is a clinician and he's teaching me a lot about how patients can see and how much patient can see, you know. So, so back in the lab, when we look at animals, right, when you take different, especially you take uh, rodents, eyes to annucleate it, and we put some staining on it, like especially looking at the bipolar cells. So you were saying about preserving versus restoring. So um, before I get into that, when we look at a wild type mice eyes, which, you know, um, it's not that uh, similar to the, to the human eye, but it is the, the whole the whole staining like you know the whole bipolar cells how the outer nuclear layer and followed by the inner nuclear layer it's actually the eye sections is quite classical among species so we actually learn a lot about from the animals and and by using the rodents which is the easiest uh, uh easiest preclinic small preclinical animal models that we could we could actually assess so when you look at that right so so you see we see that the uh, when you put on bipolar cell marker, which is uh, PKC alpha, you see that the bipolar cell body is in the new inner nuclear layers, and that is where all the synapses are. So when the bipolar cells, as the name implies, is bipolar, so it will synapse towards the photoreceptors, and it will synapse towards the ganglion cell layer. So that is where the synaptic connectivity occurs to make the vision occurs right to make the vision happen so when when we look into uh, de uh genetic degenerative model as the onl as the photoreceptor degenerate you could see that these synapses are being disrupted right so they are still the synapses still stretch towards the ganglion cells but it stops right at the it, it doesn't stretch anymore to the outer nuclear layer in the photoreceptor because it cannot synapse anymore uh in it cannot relay any more visual information towards the ganglion cells into the optic nerve and into the brain where it perceives the information, right? So when we say that we want to restore the vision, so we, we, we are, I mean, as a researcher, I'm trying to understand from the preclinical animal models here that I want to also recapitulate, you know, restore the synaptic connectivity. So when we say that we replace the cells, so when we say we replace RPE cells, RPE cells doesn't, doesn't contain any synapses that synapse to them, right? It doesn't have any synapses that synapse to them, but it synapse to the photoreceptor. So when we say that we want to restore the vision, I would hypothesize the by I would hypothesize by thinking that, you know, um, when we replace the loss of photoreceptors, that photoreceptors will be able to synapse, make the bipolar cells synapse to the inner nuclear layer and also into the ganglion cells. So that is what we meant by, you know, cell replacement therapy. So not only putting in the cells, but we need to ensure that it undergoes in vivo maturation and where the synaptic connectivity could be replaced and, 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 and uh, uh, reconstituted again in the animal models where it could be translated in terms of either in the ERG, electroretinal RAM, or actually in a visual functional test. Like in our molecular therapy paper, we actually subject this transplanted, cell transplanted uh, eye rodents in water maze test. And it actually shows that it partially restore the vision and able to, to reach the you know safety platform in a shorter time as compared to the uh to the genetic model. Yeah. Yeah, I think these are both really important points that you're raising here. It's more than just introducing the proper cell type into the eye. It's about properly rewiring the brain and the neurological system to make sure that uh, the brain can relearn what it means to have good vision, right? And that's perhaps something that 
a lot of us who aren't in the field don't really think about. And I think you both articulated that so well, both from the clinical perspective and also from the basic science perspective. So we have a bit of a dream team going on here. You know, you're, of course, a basic scientist and ophthalmologist, but you're also based at this incredible area for biomedical research in Singapore, you know, the Duke NUS Medical School, the Singapore Eye Center in beautiful, beautiful Singapore, a place where I would love to go one day. Um, I mean, despite being such a small country or city state or whatever you want to call it, it's a, it's a biomedical research powerhouse, right? I mean, folks from Singapore have taken leadership positions around the world. And actually, I, I know people who are trainees in certain programs like the A-STAR program, which are these world-renowned research fellowships for training those future leaders in this field. So what do you think is so special? What, what, is, what is in the secret sauce of Singapore that makes it able to achieve such prominence in biomedical research over the, the past few decades? Um, Dr. Tay, we'll, we'll start with you. So I would think that it takes many, many years. I might not be the best person to answer this question, but I would say that um, I did my PhD in A-STAR uh, with Edward Manser, who discovered the P21 activated kinase. So having said that, I can already, I can, um, you know, uh, say that Singapore really recruit uh, reputable, highly respected scientists uh, like like my mentor, Dr. Edward Manser, and we've, we've put scientists, reputable scientists like them coming to Singapore, attract them to, to have, you know, in the very beginning, it was more like an adventure for them to come to Singapore, right, to establish research, which is unheard of in the very early days of, of Singapore, uh, bef even before ASTAR started. So with them coming here to train us during PhD, and, and, and ASTAR was like, you know, um, also encouraging us go overseas for exposure so we went to united states some of us went to you know uh, uk or maybe even like australia or other parts of the countries other parts of the countries in europe so so we learn as much as we can and 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 with that we we want to come back like you know like researchers like me early early career researchers like me wanted to come back to singapore to see what we can do to contribute back to singapore to to actually develop you know novel research ideas and research uh, plans to actually see whether we could you know uh, uh, develop something that is like so-called made in Singapore and try to see whether we could, uh, you know, even even hold a clinical trial here. So, so I don't know what's the secret sauce, but all I can say is that um, I think um, the organ the government or the organization itself, the ASTAR organization itself, really um, has an eye to uh, hire these scientists, these really good scientists who in turn train trainees like us and, and hopefully... Um, at our generation, we will be able to train the next generation of scientists well. And, and I would believe that this takes years. And, and we really want, want to model how the American system is like, just like how Duke University is like. And I think Duke and US is actually modeling uh, uh, the American spirit in terms of the research, you know, um, especially right now, it's really ground-based system. It makes us really uh, competitive. Think about the ideas, write it down, you compete for the grant and you actually have a certain timeline to actually perform the experiments and publish it and, you know, publicize it and, and bring it to the next level in terms of translational. And, and right now we are at a juncture where we would like to commercialize, you know, spin off company and actually commercialize it. And we really um, um, look up to the, you know, Silicon Valley in in, in California and all that. And, and we really want to model the dynamic and the successful environment in America. 
A little plug for the Blue Devils there. Let's go, Duke. Bo, why don't you talk about uh, Singapore a little bit and why it's such a, a fertile ground for fostering the most innovative research? Well, I think, I mean, I'm originally from Australia, and I think Australia and the U.S., they've got, um, they're, they're obviously very, very different to Singapore. And one thing that um, they have, which Singapore doesn't, is large land area and, and natural resources. So um, Singapore's greatest uh, resource is its people. And so that's why the um, government here has placed huge emphasis on developing uh, its resource, uh, which is people. And so, you know, one of those areas is in um, biotechnology research. And we don't have over in, in Singapore the, the luxury of, you know, um, large amount of natural resources like you would have in, in the US or in, in Australia. Um, and so that's why for the past, you know, at least 20, 30 years or so, I think um, biomedical research has become almost like one of the pillars of, of the economy. I think they've done a wonderful job here to attract um, really world-class talent to come here and drive the um, development of the research programs here. And um, now it's we're sort of reached the stage where there's there's a, a subsequent generation of local uh, talent which has sort of taken over from the um, imported talent, I would say. And now um, local talent like like Gun, for example, are sort of now the drivers. And so now it's become uh, Singaporeans really uh, leading the charge. And it's certainly Singapore, although it's very small, it punches far above its weight uh, in terms of what it's been able to achieve uh, in the in the research space and in, in biomedical research. It's, it's actually a wonderful place to be. I remember um, a colleague of mine who, who came from the UK and he was from a very famous um, eye uh, hospital which we would assume had you know amazing resources but when he came and he, he would say if you can't succeed in research in Singapore you're not going to be able to succeed anywhere because it's been facilitated so wonderfully um, by the uh, the people here and the um, government here they've just made it really a, a paradise to work in so it's it's uh, we're very very happy to be here and it, it's uh, certainly you know, one of my two favorite places to be in the world. So I'm very much at home here. I'm guessing the uh, the other one must be New York City. No, I'm kidding. That, that, would, that would be yeah. home. <laughs> I haven't been, but uh, get me there as soon as possible. I'll visit your lab. You can pay. Um, that's a great point you made in particular about the uh, the maturation of these initiatives that I think were made, you know, at this point, we're approaching decades ago. And Finally, we're starting to see as, you know, the, the trainees start to foster their own trainees. Uh, we're seeing how these initiatives are, are turning into major biomedical research powerhouses. So I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that. There's a little bit of a latency there, but now it's coming to maturity and it's a beautiful thing. Um, and this has been a beautiful thing talking to you two. Uh, we really appreciate your kind of uh differing perspectives but uh definitely complementary and before we let you go we want to ask you another couple questions maybe science uh adjacent but certainly of interest to our listeners first starting with you Hui if you were if you were not a scientist a uh, basic research scientist with translational ambitions what would you be doing with your life um if i weren't if if i weren't a scientist I'll probably be an athlete. I don't think I'll be a competitive athlete because I'm really petite. 
So I, I do a lot of sports in my high school and I still do right now. So I play, I play tennis and I, I really hope that I could be a little bit more competitive in that in my age range. But, but I think maybe athlete, but, or, or maybe even like, you know, a coach, maybe it's more appropriate because of my size. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Tennis. Oh man, I would have loved to see you out there on the court making moves. Bo, how about you? What would you be doing? I mean, to be honest, well, oh, you've already done it. You were a scientist, <laughs> then now you're ophthalmologist. So you've you've lived a couple lives. In your third life, what are you going for? Oh wow! Because I was I was hoping I would get off easy there by just saying if I wasn't an ophthalmologist, I'd be a scientist. <laughs> I'm afraid not. Which is actually the truth. If if uh, suddenly tomorrow for some reason or another I wasn't able to be a clinician, then I'd probably just walk across the road and and sit down in uh, one of the benches in Hui Gun's lab and say, well, here I am. Well, I will let you have that one. I guess a benefit from from uh, past experience in a, a adjacent but a complementary profession. I was looking for badminton, maybe, just because you guys are such a dynamic duo. But uh, next, uh, back to you, Hui. Uh, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, either professional or not? I would say um professional because um we we as an assistant professor in our very early career we had this uh, mentorship that we have uh, with Duke NUS Medical School and Shirish Professor Shirish from Duke University came over and gave us and gave us a few advice on how to navigate during our during this period of really early stage career and and I have a like a um one-to-one -one relationship with him in terms of a mentor mentee we email each other occasionally to check on each other and and he's and, and we he actually helped me um, um like you know we and vet my brand to, to to see whether they are they are reasonable aims they are achievable aims and all that so so with him and and i um with him giving me some good advice i actually um had my young investigator research grant uh, a few years ago when i first started out so so he said that to me saying that it's harder to fix an engine than a steering wheel so i think he's trying to say i believe he's trying to say is that you know you have great motivation there which is which is already it's easy to fix i just need to fix your direction you know you need to fix on what you you need to do next and what you shouldn't uh what what big mistakes that you, you probably want to avoid but um you know so so um if you do not have the engine it will be harder to actually you know uh steer this car forward so this is i, I thought that was a really good advice for me as a young uh i mean as a young investigator at the time yeah, I agree with that. I, I mean, I've been there. You're so married to the idea that you, you'll drive that locomotive off a cliff, maybe, if you don't switch direction. And I think that's key to getting back on course. But what about you? What's the best piece of advice that you've heard? Yeah, this is a really tough one. Um, I would have to say that it was probably, you know, more than 20 years ago now, um, a supervisor of mine said, try to surround yourself with people that are cleverer than you are um and that really I, I believe this is a very old adage that you know has probably been around for for a very long time but I, I up until that point i hadn't heard it and when i heard it it sort of really struck home with me and um i've i've tried my best to continue to do that and certainly when i when i came here and 
um, working in the National Eye Center and in and, and SARI um, and, and Duke NUS, I feel that's absolutely been the case that I, I you know, never walk into a room and feel like um, anything other than I'm probably the, um, the most lowly creature in this room. And I've, these people have got so much to, to teach me. And so um, that's, that's an important thing I think we can all uh, learn from is trying to uh, continually better yourself by, you know, taking away from what other people can, uh, can teach you. Yeah, I, I love that adage. And I would add that it's provisional, right? That cleverness, it, it evolves. And as the years go by, the cast of characters that are the most clever need to be shuffled up a little bit as the technology advances and matures. And I think that's what I've learned, you know, in my own lab, uh, but also on this show, talking to the most seasoned, but also the, the upstarts, the rising stars, um, many generations of scientists. And I'd say the common thread is that they've all surrounded themselves with brilliant collaborators, as brilliant as they are themselves. Um, they've aimed to complement that brilliance with uh, 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 an even more brilliant cast. Um, so here I am talking to two more of them, and I really appreciate uh, you guys sharing with us and our listeners and uh, looking forward to the great things that are coming out of your labs to save us all from our eventual vision loss. I mean, I got to be honest, I start holding my phone away from me as I'm reading my Kindle on it, and my wife pointed out to me, just a couple of weeks ago and I was bereft because I've always prided myself on my eagle eyes and I didn't realize that you could still, you know, have good eyesight, so to speak, but be diminished uh, in one plane or another. So it's, it's something that affects us all. Um, it's some more than others. And we really appreciate your work to, to address that mostly unmet need. So thanks again, guys, for joining us. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you, Aaron, for having us. Thank you very much for having us. It's been wonderful to speak with you. All right, everybody, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on X at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest a guest.